Oh, hello there. Uh, I'm Don Johnson. This is episode 14 of For All Time. Uh, it is Tuesday, February 8th, 2022. Uh, uh, let's see. What time is it? It's 2.07 p.m. And today uh, I am reading an article first that relates to a topic we covered at the very beginning about train robberies in L.A. and how they're kind of coming back and how we shouldn't overlook it and how it's been overlooked for a really long time, and that's kind of the problem. Um, I'll just begin. This is from The New Yorker. Uh, this is the L.A. Postcard Dispatch or Division or uh, Drawer, whatever they describe it here. The Great Train Robbery Redux. In L.A., boxcars on the Union Pacific Rail Line have become a target for thieves and looters who pilfer the containers for motorcycles, rifles, or that linen duvet cover you ordered from Brooklyn. In. This is written by Antonio, excuse me, Antonia Hitchens, January 29th, 2022. In Preston Sturge's 1941 film, Sullivan's Travels, a Hollywood director wants to know about trouble firsthand, so he sets out hopping freight trains, living as a self-described tramp. Two weeks ago, a handful of people rummaged through the detritus of thousands of looted packages among the Union Pacific Rail Line near downtown L.A. Quote, It's like the Wild West out there, John Rodriguez, who lives near the tracks in a dwelling he built by hand, said. Union Pacific says that train robberies in the area are up 160% since December 2020. Uh, okay. That's a good multiplier for a year. During the past few months, around 90 train containers have been broken into each day. Thieves either jump into the moving cars and toss cargo out the doors, or they breach the containers while the train is stopped. Union Pacific pays a subcontractor to hire people to salvage items left along the tracks. <laughs> it's become such a problem they've had to subcontract it out to clean it up. Rodriguez, who hopped freight trains for a while before joining a punk rock band, went out to take a look. All right, cool character. Quote, almost everybody I associate here with robs trains, Rodriguez said. <laughs> it's a dope crew. At night, through binoculars, he often watches thieves break into the stalled boxcars. Quote, there will be like 20 people up and down, he said. There's a girl, and I know who runs a crew of five. <laughs> There's a girl I know who runs a crew of five. She's rough as steel, calluses from climbing the rope. He points to a cut in the fence. I see them go through the hole. Even if they put barbed wire around it, people cut into it. This is incredible. This is a movie. This is a movie script being written. Among the ripped up packages, Rodriguez has found wedding photos that were en route to newlyweds. Quote, I still have a few of them. Matrimony means something to me, he said. As well as firefighters' helmets, baby strollers, crates of Minute Maid orange juice, boxes of bedding from Brooklinen, and an urn of human remains. Quote, they'll leave behind things that are too big, he said, gesturing. There's part of a washing machine, too. Uh, too heavy to carry, or you'd have to trolley it. I've seen entire motorcycles, he went on. They'll leave behind animals, exotic birds, and I've literally found gems. It's like dumpster diving. <laughs> Rodriguez collects the cardboard boxes left behind to burn for fuel. He crossed a bridge, climbed over a railing, slipped through an open fence, and down a steep hill, detailing the thieves' route. He stopped by a friend's RV. Quote, 
The thieving is world news, the friend said. Some of the shit they got to, oh my god, sniper rifles, assault rifles. A lot of military stuff, Rodriguez said. There's gold, there's copper, a friend said. You've got 100 pounds of copper at $4 a pound. How much money do you have? Rodriguez said goodbye and walked on along the tracks. Oh, books, he said, pointing. I hate when they throw away books. A freight train went by slowly and then chugged to a stop. Those containers aren't tamper-proof, Rodriguez said. All you need is a portable drill or something. You get guys opening these up, and by the time the train gets started again, it's been 15 minutes and the whole container will be almost empty. End quote. He pointed to where mangled boxes were piled so densely that they obscured the rails. Trains have always been a means of escape, and people have always stole, he said. Who died alongside Jesus? Two thieves, right? He went on. Caesar of Rome was considered to have a connection with God and man. So you've got this political empire of power through locomotives, everyone dependent on the Pacific Railroad. End quote. Union Pacific has said that it is considering pulling out of L.A. County the nation's largest gateway for imported goods. The company's investigators suspect that an organized crime group is recruiting people living on the street to do the stealing. It's unorganized crime, Rodriguez said. He walked along the road above the tracks. It was dotted with makeshift shelters. They rob the train here, and then a uh, truck will pull up, and they'll throw stuff in the back of the truck and take off, he described. Uh, hmm. Oh, he described the method. Put up a tent like you're homeless. Hit the train, and then sell your rights to the tent to someone else. <laughs> right. I see. Yeah. Okay. Wow. He's really getting... Wow. That's a true heist right there. A dog paused to nose at an economy-sized bag of kibble that sat abandoned next to the tracks. Rodriguez emerged... Oh. Okay. Unrelated. Rodriguez emerged into the Plaza de la Raza in Lincoln Park and, and pointed to the statues of Pancho Villa and Emiliano Zapata. It's hundreds of years now they've been ripping off this train, he said. It's been happening ever since the missionaries made the roads, ever since the Chinese built the railroad. This is an old war that's been happening since the Crusades, and even before that. It's transportation. Transportation of escape. End quote. Yeah, and that was in the print edition of the February 7th, 2022 issue, which I have right in front of me. Um, that's just the beginning. So we'll, we'll start there. And let me back up a little bit more. And let me get into... Now, we read the Wall Street Journal entry at the beginning. But let me look into this uh, LA Times. Let me get into this. Because I think this is uh, this gives you a little of the detail. That gives you the color. This gives you a little more color and some of the detail. Train robberies, great or pedestrian, are nothing new in California. The rail yard thefts and resulting garbage have made a scene in LA. But the train robberies of California's past were decidedly more violent. By Pat Morrison. January 25th, 2022. They really did holler, stick them up. They really did tie bandanas around their faces and blow open railway car doors and safes with dynamite, although not always with the intended results. They did really derail trains to get at the loot. Train robbery lore has become so outsized in our mythic history, Jesse James and Butch Cassidy and the Dalton Gang, 
But what's happening now in Los Angeles with the Union Pacific being ransacked of consumer cargo is startlingly low-tech, haphazard thievery in an age where you can steal millions with a mouse click. The mauled scatterings of boxes and packages along the train tracks look like the crime scene from a Christmas Eve Santa sleighjacking. New crimes usually ride hard on the heels of new technology. As miners began hauling gold and silver out of the hills and streams of California and Nevada, it was the first stagecoaches ferrying the goods to and fro that got held up and plundered for the loot. But trains, those huge cars carrying hundreds of times more weight than horseflesh can, beckoned felons from the highways to the railroad tracks. It looks like the first such train robbery in California was in 1881, a train wrecking crew led by a man who hadn't made good as a gold miner, decided to intercept other men's gold at a less labor-intensive stage of things. It happened east of Colfax at the edge of Sierra, near the dizzying mountainside Cape Horn section of railroad. The gang deliberately damaged the rails, and when the locomotive and maybe other cars toppled over, they moved in with guns. But the men guarding the Wells Fargo car and the mail car stood their ground. The robbers went away empty-handed and were tracked down and tried good end. The best part of this saga, so says the book Great Train Robberies of the Old West, is that it emerged during the trial that Wells Fargo and Co., which had lost not a farthing in the robbery and agitated for an expensive, relentless prosecution, hadn't paid local taxes in several years, a rumored sum of $90,000. That little nugget of information tickled off tax-paying locals something fierce, given that they were footing the bill for the trial of bungling robbers. They wound up with two convictions, two acquittals, and some hard feelings against Wells Fargo. Shades of modern billionaires stiffing the public coffers on their profits. The Central Valley was plagued by a pastel of train robberies in the last decade or so of the 19th century. These were serious holdups with gunplay, corpses sieved with bullets, and explosives to blow a path to the cache of goods, which wasn't always as rich as the robbers had hoped. For a time, two of the men... Chris Evans and an aggrieved former South Pacific Railway brakeman named John Sontag dodged the law and acquired a patina of folk heroics, even after an enormous manhunt and shootout left Sontag and two lawmen dead. The Times scolded that, quote, seeing that such a man, Evans, is regarded by so many as a hero, it cannot be wondered at that many young men should prefer to imitate him rather than to seek to do honest work for modest pay, end quote. Evans, who lost an eye and an arm in the shootout, escaped from prison and was tracked to his Visalia home. Realizing that the game was up, he sent out his little boy to the sheriff with a note. Quote, Come to my house without arms and you will not be harmed. I want to talk to you. He and his men duly surrendered. Back in 1893, even as the Evans-Sontag gang were on the lam for dynamiting a Southern Pacific train and making off with thousands in coins, Evans' wife and his teenage daughter, Ava, were appearing on stage in Evans and Sontag, or the Vizalia Bandits, a potboiler about the train robbery. A San Francisco examiner reporter asked Ava whether she had stage fright at the prospect of her performance. Quote, why, it can't be anything compared to going through the scenes in reality. By the early 20th century, the train robbery M.O. was well on its way to film genre status, cashing in on the headlines, the 12-minute movie called, quote, The Great Train Robbery, perhaps you've heard of it, the granddaddy of all train heist movies, ended spectacularly with an actor facing the camera and shooting his gun four, five, six times at the audience. It was a sensation. 
They have an inset picture. A bandit, played by George Barnes, prepares to shoot his gun at the camera in a scene from 1903's The Great Train Robbery. Ten years later, in 1913, when John Sontag's brother George got shot, got out, rather, he announced his intention to make and star in a movie about the gang's deadly shootout with the law. Nothing shows he ever did, but it made for a splashy exit from the slammer. It should be pointed out that here on the Southern Pacific, uh, that out here, that Southern Pacific was not in good odor with much of the Central Valley's residents. The railroad had sharp elbows and sharp business practices and had generated land speculation, profit, and ruin depending on where it laid its tracks or chose not to. All of this had been brought to a bloody boil in 1880 in a murderous incident at Muscle Slough near Hanford. After vastly complicated, sometimes murky years of railroad land claims and settling and squatting and eviction battles and challenges to, of the railroad's power, the Muscle Slough shootout killed seven men, five of them from the settlers' group. Some of the surviving settlers were convicted of federal charges and spent months in prison. They were welcomed home as conquering heroes. Remember, Muscle Slough was on the lips of farmers lined up and down the Central Valley. And the event took on mythic status in fiction, most famously the Frank Norris novel The Octopus, which in prose and in the public's mind cemented Southern Pacific as the father of all villainy. Chris Evans' wife, uh, Chris Evans' wife's family had supposedly lost Muscle Slough property claims to the Southern Pacific, which could explain a great deal, including the folk acclaim for the gang. All right, folk hero, I understand that. Evans swore to the last that he had never committed the robberies and was paroled in 1911 by Governor Hiram Johnson. Talk about closing the circle. Johnson was the progressive Republican who promoted California reforms such as the referendum, initiative, and recall, measures that gave voters an end run around the death grip that the railroads held on the state's politicians. Incredible. I didn't know that fact. From the Greek tragedy tale, let's move to a comic opera, the notorious Dalton Gang. Whenever their win-loss record, <laughs> whatever their win-loss record elsewhere, their one California foray into bank robbery ended in humiliation. Theirs and death, not theirs. In February 1891, near the old town now called Erlemart, a trio of masked Daltons on horseback stopped an SP train. They shot the engineer and one brother fired in the air to keep passengers at bay while the others tried to force the guard inside the cash car to open the door. The guard instead started shooting through a peephole until the Daltons gave it up and rode off empty-handed. <laughs> okay. I mean, that's a pretty good security measure. Much closer to L.A., a pair pulled off two train robberies, one of them in Sun Valley, which then bore the name of Roscoe. And the best and unlikeliest story is that it got the name because Roscoe was slang for a gun. Okay. Cool. You're named after a gun. Too bad for local legend, the place was already called Roscoe in newspaper stories. <laughs> And the stories poured forth. In 1893, and again in 1994, a convicted horse thief named W.H. Kidd Thompson and a big Tahunga man named Alvarado Johnson, who had lost his ranch to SP's high produce shipping prices, stopped two different trains, derailing one of them, and held them up. The first time got the $150. The second time netted $1,500 in gold and silver coins and eventual life sentences because the crash killed a train fireman and a tramp.
Thompson managed to get a retrial. Just before it began, he sent a high-flown letter to the Times, which had once pontificated that, quote, the hanging of a few of the desperados engaged in the business would have a salutary effect, end quote. Thompson protested that the newspapers, quote, have endeavored to make it unpleasant for me by applying to me all sorts of epithets which stigmatize me as a red-handed murderer, end quote. When it comes to making the kind of mess that now litters the side of the tracks in the UP theories, looking back to early December 1902, when Angelinos were shipping Christmas gifts to the East Coast by train, and the very prosperous among them were sending jewels and silver and securities. How the case against Charles Ray Spaulding ended, the Times doesn't say. But L.A. lawmen say Spaulding was a river of wells of a... <laughs> But L.A. lawmen say Spaulding was a driver of a Wells Fargo wagon as laden with riches as a Pasha's trove, headed to the Santa Fe station for the 8 p.m. train when the allure must have overcome him. He stopped his wagon in Eastlake Park and began flailing through the boxes like a kid on Christmas morning, tossing wrappers hither and thither, ripping open envelopes of money and valuable securities, and shredding the driver's logbook of shipping information. The stuff that was too heavy to carry off, the large silver pieces and fancy luggage, was left behind when Spaulding vanished. For almost ten years, Spaulding was missing. When he was found, he was in Sing Sing Prison in New York. Back in L.A. for trial, he tried to engineer an escape by sawing through his cell window's bars and hiding the cuts with black and soap. That was so old school. Uh, not editorializing, that's in the article. Once again, as monetary technology changed, so did crime. In 1904, after robbers hurled a safe off the express car of an SP train north of San Luis Obispo, a Wells Fargo man, surnamed Campbell, doubted there was much inside it anyway. Quote, There was a time when almost every limited train traversing this part of the country carried in its express car a good-sized fortune in cash. Now it is different. There are other means of transporting it, and one of the favorite methods is simply transfer in transfer credits to the banks, right? Your modern wire system, or whatever would predate that. Campbell remarked on the fewer and fewer express robberies each year. When criminals realize they'll only get a few hundred dollars, they will hesitate before taking the chances which repose in a railroad messenger's sawed-off shotgun or a stiff sentence from the court. End quote. Dwindle they did. John Bostick didn't go far... John Postick didn't go for a safe when he held up an SP train near El Monte in 1913. He went for the passenger's riches, and he killed an other undercover uh, Southern Pacific agent who tried to stop Bostick from stealing a passenger's engagement ring. Bostick had pulled off a similar crime near Oakland a month earlier, and when he was arrested, he was wearing a sapphire from the heist and carrying a pawn ticket for the ring. <laughs> His real name was Ralph Farris, and he'd been a bad lot since he was a teenager sent to reform school all right classic train robbery of of the patrons i think we've seen that in every western ever made his ailing parents recognized his picture in the paper and sent out to the trek to visit their son in san quentin before he was hanged it was because of them he said that he'd use a friend's name and not his own it'll be better for my father and mother if i swing as bostwick and not ferris his father, perhaps not incidentally, had been an SP conductor and lost a leg in an accident. Mere weeks after Boswick's execution, an Englishman with an education named J.W. Burke confessed to sticking up a mail car near L.A.'s principal train station. By then, life was imitating the movies, imitating life. 
Burke's partner, described by the Times as a cocaine fiend <laughs> named Jean Labanta, and an old hand at train robberies, told the agent in the mail car, Stick him up, you son of a bitch. The next day, Burke got his share of the haul, a cool 30 bones. Such was the pressure brought to bear for a law to match the offense that in 1905 it became a death penalty offense to kill someone by derailing a train. It was that law that was under consideration in Los Angeles a hundred years later after a suicidal man parked his gas-drenched jeep on a Metrolink track in Glendale and killed 11 people in the derailment. He was convicted of 11 counts of murder, but not of train wrecking. And now for my confession. I come from a train-robbing family. During the Depression, a great-uncle who worked for the railroad would alert my grandfather when a coal train was coming through town. My grandfather's two older boys, my uncles, then probably 10 and 11 years old, uh, my father was still far too young for this crime family stuff, would hustle a mile or so out of town, climb aboard the rolling coal car, throw off as many hunks of coal as they can, then hop off the train and go back later to with a wheelbarrow to collect the coal they tossed. It kept them warm through the winter. Don't worry, officers. I'll go quietly. All right. Um, yeah, so uh, this country has a legacy of... Uh, Of train robberies and if you want to go look at <laughs> all the articles and the pictures of the boxes you can go find them they're all over there's articles everywhere um i i, I love that this is coming back i love that the old school uh, crimes and scams are coming back i think this is really exciting to me i think this will open up new avenues for fiction and movies and um you know i think that uh, we'll all succeed if we all pay attention to the train robberies that are happening in 2022. Because why not? I think. It sounds like a wise idea. And that's enough of that. But here's the next thing. People Magazine. This week's People Magazine. I'm reading here about our boy, Kenneth G. Kenny G. And uh, his renaissance. This is uh, an article by Brianne Tracy. He's the best-selling instrumentalist of all time. Interesting factoid. But the saxophonist has plenty of other talents. If there were multiple me's, I'd want to accomplish even more. Kenny G is trying to stay focused. Keep it quiet, the saxophonist says as he tees up his ball on the mini-golf mat set up in the Los Angeles home rented for his people photo shoot. His determination to get a hole in one is in jest, but with anything Kenny G does, whether it's playing golf or performing a sold-out show, the musician demands perfection. It's just the way I'm wired, he explains. I always tell people that you can have a really good life if you get really good at something. An avid golfer, pilot, baker, and most famously the best-selling instrumentalist of all time, with more than 75 million records sold, Kenny G, 65, goes all in when he sets his mind to doing anything. Since becoming a household name in the 80s with his multi-platinum album, Duo Tones, which inadvertently pioneered the smooth jazz genre, he has never stopped trying to improve his craft. He is a man who birthed the genre. I mean, we, we absolutely must respect that. He religiously practices the saxophone for up to four hours a day, every day. And in recent years, he stayed current through unexpected collaborations with Kanye West and The Weeknd. I've been around a long time, so when people like Kanye and The Weeknd are asking me to play on their records, yeah, I do feel like it's a resurgence in my career right now, says Kenny G, who released his 18th studio album, New Standards, in December. 
I'm not trying to sound egotistical, but I've always thought that when you have something of great quality, you become timeless. Kenny G's music has indeed been a fixture at weddings and in offices and shopping malls for decades, even as far away as China, where his 1990 song, Going Home, has been played at the end of the workday in businesses around the country since its release. His massive success, including platinum and multi-platinum albums like 1992's Breathless, which sold 12 million copies in the U.S., has made him a frequent critical target. He's been parodied on South Park and Wayne's World 2, and his 1999 mashup of his cover of What a Wonderful World and Louis Armstrong's classic 1967 version moved jazz pianist Pat Metheny to write a scathing essay that went viral. In it, Metheny questioned Kenny G's saxophone skills and accused him of creating a new low point in modern culture. I don't know, I think that song is sentimental and... Um, Whatever. It's a song. It's fine. It's completely, it's completely fine. Still, even the staunchest critics, some of whom appear in HBO's recent documentary, Listening to Kenny G, can't calm him down. Why would I listen to some critic writing something about me when Miles Davis himself told me to my face that he liked what I was doing, he says. I don't pay attention to the haters, but I always like to see if they've made a comment about me cleverly. A hater who is clever is cool. Take it from Kenny G. Born Kenneth Bruce Gorlick in Seattle to Dad Morris, who owned a plumbing supply store, and Mom Evelyn, Kenny G found his calling at age 10. In high school, he tried to emulate famed sax player Grover Washington Jr. But, quote, I can never sound like him, he says. It, I just sound like me. Eventually, that turned out to be a great thing. In 1982... Arista Record President Clive Davis signed him to the label, but it wasn't until four years later when he made a snap decision to play his original tune, Songbird, instead of his popular single, What Does It Take to Win Your Love, during his debut on The Tonight Show starring Johnny Carson, that his career took off. Kenny G's success has truly been singular and historic, says Davis. He's had to overcome negative critical reviews, but he's been an overwhelming... He has been an overwhelming people's favorite musician all over the world. As his fan base grew, so did the Legion of Detractors. I have thick skin because of the criticism happening early on. He says, recalling two different experiences, playing duo tones at the same upstate New York jazz festival. The first year I played, the review came out saying, what a fresh new sound. Then the next year, after millions of my records had been sold, the review came out saying, he's gone commercial. I played the same way. I don't think there's an artist who wouldn't want more sales, and if that's commercial, maybe it's because lots of people like it. Through his highs and lows, Kenny G's constant has been his family. I love being a father, he says. It's been great all the way around. His sons Noah, 24, and Max, 28, with ex-wife Lindy Benson, are adults now, but they can always count on him for guidance. Quote, one of the secrets of parenting is asking questions, he says. If my son would say something like, I really hate this teacher, I would go, well, why? After enough questions, they've answered enough of the problem themselves. Precisely, Kenny G. Amazing parenting skills. My kids grew up with a lot of decision-making power. One thing is he doesn't give them advice on is love. They think I'm way out of touch, he says with a laugh. <laughs> After seeing two marriages end, he split from his first wife, Janice de Leon, in 1987, and 
He and Benson separated in 2012 after 20 years of marriage. Kenny G is coy about the current state of his love life. Music doesn't lie, he demurely offers. Looking toward the future, he's excited to say for the first time that he doesn't know what comes next. It could be a lullaby album, or it may be another Christmas record, he says. But one thing is certain he's about slowing down. Uh, he's One thing he's certain about is that slowing down isn't an option. Retirement would only happen if something physical were to prevent me from playing, he says. It's been quite a life, so I'm going to play for as long as I can. And I just... Uh, I just absolutely love getting a little word from uh, from the man Kenneth G. And uh, to to pull it over, I see a little article here that I'm just gonna I'm just gonna pop in. This is a looks like a profile of old uh, Johnny Knoxville. Risky business. The Jackass star became famous for his outrageous stunts. Now, 50 year old dad of three, he looks back at his wild and painful ride by Nigel Smith. And then there's an inset photo, bucking the system. In Jackass Forever, a stunt with a bull left Knoxville with a broken wrist and ribs, as well as a concussion. It shows him getting absolutely decimated by a steer. Over the past 20 years, Johnny Knoxville has put his body through hell, all for laughs. The actor and mastermind behind the 2000-2002 MTV series Jackass became famous performing daredevil stunts and has suffered, among other things, a broken wrist, cracked ribs, and a torn urethra that left him with a catheter for three and a half years. Today at 50, Knoxville's healed and healthy. Who would have known that I would have gotten here, he says. Grateful to be alive, he realizes the scars he's accumulated on the outside have made him tougher on the inside. You learn through mistakes. You can't be the same person you were at 20, at 50, he adds. If you've done that, you've done yourself a disservice. Absolutely. That doesn't mean he stopped doing what he loves. He's currently starring in the franchise's fourth film, Jackass Forever. But now, as a dad to son Rocco, 12, and daughter Arlo, 10, with wife Naomi Nelson and daughter Madison, 26, with ex-wife Melanie Lynn Cates, he realizes it might be time to start playing it safer. I put my th family through enough. I don't think I have anything else to prove, he says. And my doctor says I can't take another hit to the head. I have had so many concussions. He's also embracing getting older and during the pandemic let his hair go gray. There are some extra wrinkles when I look in the mirror, he says. I've earned the face that I have, and it's fine. Raised in Tennessee with two older sisters by his father, Phil, a salesman, and a stay-at-home mom, Lemoyne, the performer born Philip John Clapp credits his wild side to his dad. He had a huge personality and loved nothing more than to stir up trouble, Knoxville says. He would send letters from the IRS to his friends saying they were going to be audited. He was my idol. <laughs> Shortly after graduating from high school, Knoxville moved to Los Angeles with hopes of becoming an actor. I was taking acting classes for years and didn't really settle down until the, my then-girlfriend got pregnant, he recalls. I was like, okay, I've got to do something. To provide for his new family, Knoxville worked as a journalist at a skateboarding magazine where he pitched his story to the editor and future Jackass director, Jeff Tremaine. For the piece, Knoxville shot himself in the chest while wearing a bulletproof vest. They filmed, they filmed the stunt and brought the footage to MTV, and soon Jackass was born. That's all it takes. Well, that's all it took back then. Now people do that all the time on YouTube. The show gave MTV some of its highest ratings and made Knoxville a star. I went from being broke within a year. Uh, I went from being broke to, within a year, I was on the cover of Rolling Stone, he says. It's a lot to wrap your head around. 
He credits his friends and Jackass co-stars with keeping him grounded. It's just a bit of serendipity that we found this really dysfunctional family together, he says. That includes his pal Steve-O, real name Stephen Glover, 47, who calls Knoxville the captain and says he thinks of him as our fearless leader. Despite the pride Knoxville feels for his jackass success, he insists he has no desire to see his kids follow in his daredevil footsteps. I've made it very clear to my son that he won't be going into the family business. But it does seem like he has some good life advice. And why wouldn't he? He's made some incredible work. All right. And up next, let's take a look here. Oh, yes, I love this. But hold on. Uh, you can listen to me walk to the fridge. How about that? Okay, so this is a big shift. This is uh, in the Tuesday, February 8th. Uh, that's, oh yeah, it's today. It is today's paper. All right. Three stories here. We'll see what we can get through. We're already at, uh, what are we? 36 minutes, 37 minutes. All right. Japan looks to surveillance to keep an eye on its elderly. This is in the uh, today's Cover the Business section. By Ben Dooley and Hisako Ueno. Itami Japan. In his early 70s, Koji Uchida began to vanish. And there's an inset photo also I might add. Well, I don't want to spoil the story. I'll read the, uh, <laughs> I'll read the text first. For some time, the police found him sitting... Well, the first time, the police found him sitting in front of a vending machine 17 miles from home. He began to go missing regularly once wandering for two days before turning up at a stranger's apartment, hungry and barely able to remember his name, his mind clouded by dementia. At a loss for what to do, his family asked the local government to put Mr. Uchida under digital surveillance. In Itami, the suburb of Osaka, where Mr. Uchida's family lives, more than 1,000 censors line the streets, each unit emblazoned with a smiling cartoon figure bracketed by Wi-Fi squiggles. When Mr. Uchida went out for... Uh, walk, the system recorded his location through a beacon hidden in his wallet and sent his family a steady stream of alerts. When he veered off course, the family could easily find him. Itami is one of several localities that have turned to electronic tracking as Japan, the world's grayest nation, meaning their average age is above all else, confronts an epidemic of dementia. The programs offer the promise of protecting those in cognitive decline while helping them retain some independence. But they also have evoked fears of Orwellian overreach, which is the first thing you'll notice if I read the inset. The streets of Itami, Japan, and the suburbs of Osaka are lined with more than 1,000 sensors equipped to help track elderly residents who carry the corresponding beacon on their person. 
I'll continue. Itami is one of several localities that have turned to electronic tracking in Japan, the world's greatest nation, uh, as they confront their dementia problems. Japan's surveillance efforts presage the conundrums facing countries across the globe as populations rapidly age. How to manage the huge expense of care for people living ever longer lives, as well as the social costs to families and other loved ones. In other words, uh... How do we reduce the amount of time and energy and care and love that you have to spend with your loved ones so that you can continue buying and consuming and uh, increasing the GDP? The Japanese government sees the task as critical to the country's future stability, envisioning fundamental changes to nearly every aspect of life, I assume, aspect of society, including education, health care, and even, in Atami, infrastructure. The surveillance system there is one of the most extreme examples of this adaptation. Advocates for people with dementia, including some with the condition itself, have raised serious concerns about digital tracking, warning that the convenience and peace of mind offered by surveillance could threaten the dignity and freedom of those under watch. The monitoring of older people has deepened the questions of consent as electronic surveillance systems have become a fixture worldwide, applied broadly in wealthy open nations like the United States and Britain, and in author authoritarian ones like China. Japanese people are intensely protective of their personal privacy, and many municipalities have adopted less intrusive forms of electronic tracking. As with any tool, the value of the Japanese systems will ultimately be determined by how they are used, said Kumiko Nagata, the lead researcher at the Tokyo Dementia Care Research and Training Center. She sees promise in applications that give users more freedom by relieving fears that they will get lost, but she worries that the systems will, quote, be just used as tools for dealing with problem people. End quote. Anyone who has become a burden on a family or officials. Exactly what I was just getting at. As the nation with the world's oldest population, Japan is vulnerable, most vulnerable, to the ravages of dementia, memory loss, confusion, slow physical decline, and most heartbreakingly, the ineluctable dissolution of the self and relationships with others. Japan has the world's highest proportion of people with dementia, about 4.3% of the population, according to an estimate by the Organization for Economic Cooperation and Development. A 2012 Japanese government study found more than 4.62 million residents with dementia, and some researchers estimate that a quarter of the Japanese population will have the condition by 2045. A quarter... Uh, um, what? Um, I'm just going to continue. I think... I'm just going to read that one more time. Japan has the world's highest proportion of people with dementia at about 4.3% of the population, according to an estimate by the Organization for Economic Cooperation and Development. Do your homework there. Uh, a cooperation... Let's see. A 2012 Japanese government study found more than 4.62 million residents with dementia. Okay, but some researchers estimate that a quarter of the Japanese population will have the condition by 2045. Now, that's only, you know, 20 years away. That's, what do you do? What, this is not enough. I mean, l let's forget the Orwellian aspect. Let's take all the negative aspects of that off the table. You run, even with this system, what's that going to do when one out of four people are like thinking they're watching a baseball game in 1968? More than 17,000 people with dementia went missing in 2020, up from 9,600 in 2012. 
the first year official data was reported. Um, that year, the government issued its first national dementia policy and has been grappling ever since with building a legal framework to better accommodate those with the condition. One major outcome has been an increased focus on helping people with dementia age in place instead of consigning them to nursing homes, instead uh, in hopes of improving their quality of life and lessening the load on overtaxed care facilities. But home-based dementia care can be a major source of anxiety for caregivers and those in cognitive decline. While many localities in Japan offer adult daycare, it can be expensive and leave gaps in supervision for the most likely to wander. National policies and messaging on accommodating those with dementia often conflict with social experiments, <laughs> social expectations, excuse me, and the behavior of local authorities. Families sometimes hide away people with dementia, fearing that erratic behavior could attract social stigma or inconvenience to the community. That's kind of fucked, but I, yep, I, yep. For those who repeatedly wander, the police may pressure families to keep them at home or closely monitor their movements. In 2007, a 91-year-old man with dementia wandered away from his home in central Japan and was hit and killed by a train. Actually, I just read about that happening, like, yesterday. There's a 99-year-old man who got hit by a, um, a car. He was, well, what am I saying? Why am I making this more depressing? Uh, the decision was reversed on appeal, but the damage was done for the families worried that a slip-up could be ruinous. Um, public perceptions of those with dementia have improved in the last decade, said Miki Sato, 46, who is diagnosed with dementia at age 43 and staffs a company that provides work opportunities for others with the condition. But there is still a tendency to put families' needs above those of individuals, she said. People with dementia want to be trusted, she said, adding... The number of people who want to use these GPS trackers is pretty low compared to the number of people who are made to use them. For Ms. Sato, who helped develop an app with location tracking to assist people with dementia as they shop for groceries, the most important thing is that there's, oh, is that it's the person's choice. Still, her fear of becoming lost is real. On bad days, train stations and street names blend together and addresses dance at the edge of her memory. As my symptoms advance, I can imagine that I might use them myself. She said of the tracking systems. When people with dementia disappear, most Japanese communities will take an analog approach to finding them. Volunteer search teams are activated and the authorities play alerts on local radio stations or on the public address systems found in most neighborhoods. Some localities have turned to low-tech solutions, such as key chains, with instructions on how to help those who are lost. I don't know why I said key chains, weird. But as more people with dementia live at home, digital solutions have been uh, have become more alluring. The those range from more intrusive, such as security cameras and tracking devices that can be slipped into a shoe, or more passive options like QR codes that can go on a fingernail and alert caregivers when scanned. Although localities and companies have made large investments in developing and promoting the programs, they remain sparsely used in part because of ethical concerns. The problem of informed consent on a is a particularly tricky one, especially in cases where it can be difficult to assess whether a person with dementia is capable of giving it. The resignation process for the systems is typically initiated by caregivers, and only as a last resort. Medical professionals then evaluate... Let's <laughs> take a second here. The registration process for the systems is typically initiated by caregivers and only as a last resort. Medical professionals then evaluate prospective surveillance candidates. They are not required to notify the individuals themselves. Take, for example, the city of 
Taka- Takasaki in central Japan, which introduced its own GPS tracking system in 2015. Much like their peers in Atami, caregivers can unilaterally share their ward's photos and give the police permission to get access to their location data. All right. Chill. Itami's mayor, uh, Yasuyuki Fujiwara, said that when he first proposed a surveillance program, he was, quote, worried about the perception that we would be spying on private citizens. Mr. Fujiwara initially pitched the idea as a tool for stopping crime and keeping an eye on children as they walked to school. Before long, the cameras began popping up citywide. There are locations chosen with public comment. In 2015, the city opened the program to the families of older people prone to wandering. The cameras themselves don't track people. They're equipped with receivers that communicate with small beacons carried by those enrolled in the program. Okay. When bearers of the beacons pass by, the device records their position and sends it to the smartphone app that an authorized caregiver can check. Mr. Fujiwara offered assurances that the data could be viewed only by the family. Still, only 190 older people used the program last year, while nearly half of all elementary students in the city of 200,000 were registered. Uh, there's, there's your buried bit of information. Mr. Fujiwara offered assurances that the data could be viewed only by the family. Still, only 190 older people used the program last year, while nearly half of all elementary students in the city of 200,000 were registered. Time's a flat circle. Mr. Uchida's son, Shintaro, who works in the city hall, signed his father up in 2019. His family agreed to discuss Mr. Uchida's experience to further public understanding of dementia. His father was a proud man who believed in staying busy. After he retired, he immediately landed another job. In his early 70s, however, he began having trouble driving. His memory faded. Mr. Uchida, now 78, has spent decades in Itami, raising his family and working at a printing company. But when he went on his daily walks, the streets were no longer familiar. During one month, Mr. Uchida disappeared three times, his wife Kiko said. The tracking program helped slow his wandering, but could not stop it. In March, his family reluctantly placed him in a nursing facility. His beacon now sits in his home, indicating only his absence. On a similar tip, IRS to end use of facial recognition. Same issue, same page on the front. By Alan Rappaport in Kashmir Hill. Washington. The internet... uh, uh, Let's start this over. Washington. The Internal Revenue Service plans to stop using facial recognition software to identify taxpayers seeking access to their accounts on the agency's website amid concerns over privacy and data security. The IRS was already coping with a daunting tax season faced with backlogs of old tax returns. Staffing shortages and the additional complexity of paying stimulus and child tax credits. Now the agency must also change how it verifies the identity of taxpayers. The IRS said on Monday that it would transition away from using a third-party service for facial recognition to help authenticate people creating online accounts. The transition will occur over the coming weeks to prevent additional disruptions in the tax filing season, which ends April 18th. The tax agency came under criticism after the Treasury Department awarded ID.me an identity identity verification company an $86 million contract last year to make sure that taxpayer accounts were more secure from data leaks, a growing concern. 
But the service, which requires taxpayers to take video selfies as part of the verification process, frustrated taxpayers and raised concerns about the collection of sensitive biometric data. Quote, the IRS takes taxpayer privacy and security seriously, and we understand the concerns that have been raised, said Charles P. Reddig, the agency commissioner. Quote, everyone should feel comfortable with how their personal information is secured, and we are quickly pursuing short-term options that do not involve facial recognition. The IRS is developing another authentication process that does not involve facial recognition and is working with other agencies to create tools to protect taxpayer data. The agency said the change would not affect the ability of taxpayers to file their returns. For weeks, advocacy groups have complained that making, ta <laughs> that making taxpayers have their faces mapped was an invasion of privacy. And lawmakers received complaints that the creaky IRS website had gotten even harder to use. Yeah, when is it? It's always been at a zero out of ten. But the IRS got way ahead of itself by forcing taxpayers to use facial recognition without having done the hard work of ensuring the technology is appropriate. Yes, said Eric Goldman, co-director of High Tech Law Institute at Santa Clara University. The IRS's backtracking on facial recognition-based identity, identity verification proves a strong cautionary tale for any other government agencies thinking facial recognition is an easy or quick solution. Caitlin Seeley George, campaign director at Fight for the Future, a digital freedom group, noted that the Social Security Administration, oh, the Social Security Administration, the Department of Veterans Affairs, and many state agencies also use ID.me, and she called for those contracts to also cease. Quote, no one should ever be coerced into handing over their sensitive biometric information to the government in order to access essential services, she said. A group of Republican senators expressed alarm about the IRS's authentication system in a letter to Mr. Reddick last week, calling the software, quote, intrusive. Senator Ron Wyden of Oregon, the Democratic chairman of the Senate Finance Committee, <laughs> the Senate Finance Committee, expressed similar concerns in a letter to Mr. Reddick on Monday. I have long argued that Americans should not have to sacrifice their privacy for security, Mr. Wyden said. The government can treat Americans with respect and dignity while protecting against fraud and identity theft. End quote. He hailed the IRS's move on Monday as a, quote, smart decision, saying that no one should be forced to submit to facial recognition to access critical government services. There's the line. Mr. Wyden has proposed that the IRS use login.gov, an authentication system that millions of Americans already use for access to some federal websites as a replacement. <laughs> okay, because I already have one. Cool. The IRS has been a frequent target of criticism in recent years, or, you know, since its inception, particularly from Republicans who have tried to starve the agency of funding, and it was initially reluctant to abandon ID.me. And unveiled the system in November as a way to ensure that taxpayers could securely monitor their accounts and check on payments, such as the child tax credit deposits. Some technology experts said fears over facial recognition technology were misplaced. A lot of it is just irrational discomfort over facial recognition ever being mentioned, said Nicholas, Nicholas Weaver, a computer science lecturer at the University of California, Berkeley. He argued that using facial recognition was safer than providing websites with other identifying information. ID.me's chief executive, Blake Hall, has been responding to the public criticism via posts to his LinkedIn page. Interesting communication method. Last month, he argued that his system is not only verified uh, not only verified identity, but also check faces against those of known identity thieves. 
I'm going to really... He pointed to the indictment last month of a New Jersey man on charges that he tried to claim more than $2.5 million in unemployment benefits in California. Data shows that removing this control would immediately lead to significant identity theft and organized crime, Mr. Hall said. The status of ID.me's contract with the federal government, including whether the government will continue to pay the company, is not clear, and the Treasury Department had no comment. ID.me referred questions on the matter to the IRS on Monday, and it appeared to defend itself on Twitter. Quote, facial recognition is just one of the components we use to follow the federal standards, the company said. Without it, the identity thieves behind these attacks would be much more successful. And that's letting me know it's 3 o'clock. Which means nothing to anyone, really. Uh, Let's see. Even me today. Um, Let's see. And then uh, what's... I know that there was one more good one here. Ponder that while I uh, look over here. I'm looking. I'm looking at a newspaper. Oh, here we go. This is a great one. You'll love this. Error merger could create budget giant. By Niraj Chok... By Niraj Chokshi. Spirit Airlines and Frontier Airlines, two prominent budget carriers, especially if you love a cheap plane ticket, which I do, um, on Monday announced plans to merge a combination that would create the fifth largest U.S. fleet by market share, putting pressure on the nation's biggest carriers and raising concerns about further consolidation in an already concentrated industry. The airlines, which offer 1,000 daily flights serving destinations in the United States, the Caribbean, and Latin America, said in a statement that the merger would have cons- uh, save consumers $1 billion annually, not that it will matter to them, and that the airlines would not lay off employees because of it. Okay, well, that's... Uh, they also said they expected to hire 10,000 workers by 2026 to add to their current combined total of 15,000. All right, so they're probably going to expand their fleet too, I would assume. The deal could face pushback from the Biden administration, which has increasingly challenged such mergers and partnerships in court. In the fall, the Justice Department sued to prevent <laughs> real newspaper live in the studio. Uh, they sued to prevent the domestic alliance between American Airlines and JetBlue Airways, arguing that the agreement would drive up prices and reduce competition. Yep, that's that's the idea what they're supposed to be doing. That's good that they're at least pretending to do it. The U.S. airline industry has also undergone a tremendous amount of consolidation over the past two decades, with the nation's four largest airlines controlling about 80% of the domestic market. Spirit and Frontier argue that the merger would allow them to create better challenge to those large carriers. But a deal would also create a giant budget airline that could smother smaller companies, including two recent entrants, Breeze and Avello. Quote, We basically have a four-firm oligopoly, said Diana Moss, the president of the American Antitrust Institute, a left-leaning think tank and competition law advocacy group. Quote, Having this fringe of smaller carriers breathing down their necks is really the only thing that keeps the big four on their toes. And while, yes, that is definitely the position that someone would take in a group that would identify as left-leaning, I would also say this, that take the industry that you're most familiar with. If you're most uh, most familiar with the industry of video games, for example, it's currently going through this. If you're very familiar with the world of... uh, I mean, anything in finance that's some kind of 
not like a literal token or a crypto or NFT, but anything that's like a tradable token. And, and it, anything where its stock has become a currency of some sort. Let me just continue. Barry Biffle, Frontier's chief executive, I think you get what I'm saying, said the airlines had reached out to the Biden administration about the merger and expected it would be well-received. He argued that the deal would allow the airlines to offer more cheap fares and better service. Quote, the administration reached out to us as well as Spirit and other low-cost carriers over the last year, asking us if they could or how they could do more for competition, Mr. Biffle said in an interview. And I think one of the big answers to that is this merger, because we have the scale and ability to compete against the big four. As the airline industry strives to move past the pandemic, executives expect the recovery to accelerate in the spring and summer. Although every carrier was devastated over the past two years, Spirit and Frontier have bounced back more quickly thanks to an early rebound in domestic leisure travel and uh, their core business. Corporate and international travel has been slower to cover. The merger is expected to close in the second half of the year, subject to the regulatory review and approval of Spirit shareholders. Under the deal, Frontier would buy Spirit for $2.9 billion in stock and cash. Little has been decided about how the new company would operate, including its management team, its branding, and the location of its headquarters. Under the agreement, owners of Frontier's equity would control 51.5% of the combined company, and Frontier would name 7 of 12 board members. The board would be led by William A. Frank, the chairman, and, uh, uh, the chairman of Frontier and the managing partner of Indigo Partners. Indigo Partners. Indigo Partners, a private equity firm that invests in budget airlines. Indigo held a controlling interest in Spirit from 2006 to 2013 when it sold Spirit and bought Frontier. Under Indigo's leadership, Spirit went public in 2011 and Frontier went public last year. Mr. Biffle, Frontier's chief executive, was a top Spirit executive from 2005 to 2013. And if that doesn't, revolving door doesn't tell you the entire story right there, I don't even need to say anything. Why would I? The private equity firm... Hmm. Indigo has a long history with both Spirit and Frontier, Mr. Frank said in an interview with a conference called Investor Analysts. I think it's safe to say no one knows them better than I do. Safe to say. The private equity firm has also advised and invested in Tiger Air in Singapore, Valaris in Mexico, and Wiz Air in Europe. Last year, Wiz, where Mr. Frank has long been chairman, tried and failed to acquire EasyJet, another low-cost carrier. A merger between Spirit and Frontier, known in the industry as ultra-low-cost carriers, has long been the subject of speculation. Analysts say the airlines complement each other. Frontier, which has its headquarters in Colorado, is more heavily concentrated in western states. Spirit, which is based in Florida, is more concentrated in the east. Both jets use exclusively... Hmm. Both use jets exclusively from the Airbus A320 family love to fly that, to carry out point-to-point flights. The airlines sometimes serve uh, the same cities, but they overlap in only about 18% of their routes, according to Sirium, an aviation data provider. Spirit brings more international exposure with nearly three times as many flights abroad as Frontier, according to Sirium. The airlines said that together they would be able to serve destinations that one or both had abandoned, including Jackson, Mississippi, Birmingham, Alabama, Dulles International Airport near Washington as well. 
This said the merger could enable the new airline to start flights to small cities too, including Eugene, Oregon, Ithaca, New York, and Worcester, Mass. The airlines argued that the deal would benefit consumers with flights to and from 145 nations in 19 countries. In November, the average price of a domestic ticket sold by Spirit was $109 before taxes and fees compared to with... <laughs> compared with... I'll just say compared with because that's what it says. $73 for Frontier, according to Sirium. By joining forces, the airlines assert they will be able to offer more flights on existing routes, giving customers more choices and allowing new, the new company to better respond to disruptions. I think it's a slam dunk, not a reduction of competition, said Robert Mann, an industry analyst and consultant. It's essentially... Uh, it essentially reinforces the price discipline that DOJ relies on when they allow things, which other things, which arguably aren't so good. The combination would consolidate the airline's hold over some airports, which could put pressure on other carriers such as JetBlue, Alaska Airlines, Hawaiian Airlines, and Allegiant Airlines to join forces through partnerships or mergers. Together, Spirit and Frontier would hold a 26% share of the market in Orlando, Florida, more than any other airline according to Sirium data for 2021. In Las Vegas, the combined carrier would have a 24% share, second only to Southwest Airlines. Still, competition in those cities is fierce and not nearly as limited as some in the airport hubs maintained by the largest carriers, Ted Christie, Spirit's chief executive, said in an interview. Those are both big leisure destination marketplaces and very competitive as is, he said. American Airlines, which is based in Fort Worth, holds more than 80% share of the market at Dallas-Fort Worth International Airport, according to Sirium data. At Hartsfield-Jackson Atlanta International Airport, where Delta Airlines is based, that airline holds a 78% share of the market. United and Southwest also command similar shares at some of their hubs. In addition to regulatory approval, Spirit and Frontier will have to renegotiate contracts with their unions, which were notified of the deal on Monday. Pilots at both airlines are represented by the Airline Pilots Association, while the flight attendants for both are represented by the Association of Flight Attendants. Quote, Our first priority is to determine whether this merger will improve conditions of for flight attendants, just like the benefits of companies have described for shareholders and consumers, the flight attendants union said in a statement. Our support of the merger will depend on this. Spirit and Frontier have a combined fleet of more than 280 Airbus planes with plans to grow to nearly 500 by 2026. All right. So I was, I was right about the planes. Spirit stock up was about uh, Spirit stock was up about 17% on the close of trading Monday, just below Frontier's bid of 25.83 per share. Other airline stocks were also up on the news, which is not usually how shares or competitors react to a potential entry of a disruptive new challenger. It was another sign that Frontier and Spirit could face a challenge in convincing regulators that their merger would lead to stiffer competition and lower prices. The combined airline would have an annual revenue of about $5.3 billion based on 2021 results, the announcements said. So the airline industry is just getting a little bit uh, smaller. and I don't see any reason why that probably won't go through. But uh, there you go. I know a little bit more about the planes you're flying on. So, uh, let's see. Let's move forward here. And take a look at... 
this. Okay, there we go. This is in the, uh, oh, <clears throat> getting close to the microphone over here. Okay. Grin and Beer It. This is in uh, today's post. It's easy to know when the Cincinnati Bengals are good again. The signs are always the same, and they come in triplicate. One, there's a renewed love affair with the Tiger Stripe helmets, the best at any level of football. Number two, it's impossible to turn on your television without seeing either Boomer Esiason or Chris Collinsworth, who are much prouder, or at least louder, alums of the Bengals than they are of Maryland or Florida, the respective college alma maters. Hootay! As in the back and the for as in the back and forth chant, hootay, hootay, hootay think they... <sighs> Let me do it again. One more time. Just for the record. Hootay, hootay! Who do you think going to beat them Bengals? To which the immediate reply is, nobody! It started this time when another old hero of Cincinnati, Icky Woods, took part in the ceremony accepting the Lamar Hunt Trophy when the Bengals beat the Chiefs in Kansas City nine days ago. Of course, back home, the chant had never gone away, not since it was originally popularized in 1981 during the Bengals' first run to the Super Bowl, not since it was revived in 1988, the most recent one in which both Esizen and Collinsworth played. And, in, and then there's an editor's note in the sports opinion section. And in fairness to the loyal Bengals constituency, it survived many, many, many years when the Bengals were the Bungles. And the standard answer to who they think going to beat them Bengals was actually everybody and by two touchdowns. Yes, you'll be hearing that chant a lot in the coming days. And you can place the over-under at 25 and a half at how many times NBC will show Bengals fans either inside SoFi Stadium Sunday or back home in one of the town's more popular sports bars like Knockback Nats at 7th Street or Kitty's Sports Grill on 3rd screaming themselves hoarse. The story behind this story starts, as most good stories do, with beer. Hudapal beer, to be specific. Back in 1885, Ludwig Hudapal II, son of Bavarian immigrants, teamed with a partner, George Cott, to buy the struggling Buckeye Brewery on Main Street in Cincinnati, a city teeming with beer halls and brew pubs thanks to an enormous German population. The renamed lager became an immediate hit and years later was one of only four local breweries to survive prohibition. Hudapal could have become a civic footnote like mostly local beers like Iron City in Pittsburgh and Old Style in Chicago and Schaefer in New York. But it happened to be an awfully popular in the city's sporting ven venues, Crosley Field at first, then Riverfront Stadium, and then was born the local rallying, <laughs> the local rallying cry, give me a hootay! Hootay it was. Or hootie, perhaps. Hootie it was, which morphed into hootay. It didn't take long for it to become the Bengals' public mantra. <laughs> mantra. Definitely mantra. And Cincinnatians were quick to remind you that the very similar Who Dat chant adapted by New Orleans fans didn't become a recognized Saints cheer until 1983, two years later, even if locals use it to celebrate other things for decades. During the 1988 Super Bowl run, Who Pole came out with a limited edition brand called Who Day. H-U-D-E-Y. There's a picture in set if you'd like to go look it up. And last week, as Bengals fans grew 
Used to the idea of being AFC champions, a few longtime true believers responded by crapping... <laughs> by cracking open one of the cans they'd saved as souvenirs for almost 35 years. The results were predictably, well, unappealing. Hudipol, now under the umbrella of Cincinnati Beverage Company, responded by issuing another limited edition run... And limited is being generous. 3,000 six-packs with orange and black stripes and the traditional Hudapal logo, with Huday naturally dominating, and the city's newest motto, it is us, so like Huday, it is us, in smaller type, were released Monday in Cincinnati, Cincinnati between 1 and 5 p.m. We've been with the Bengals through thick and thin. Jody Wolfington, chief marketing officer for Sinbev, told Cincinnati's city... Beat website. It just says, it doesn't say City Beat. It just says City Beat website. Lifelong diehard Bengals fans have really waited for this moment to be on the national stage again, and we really felt like it was the right time to bring the commemorative can back to celebrate the city. It's worth going to Google and checking out some of Hudipal's local vintage commercials, which started, uh, which starred Artie Johnson of Laugh-In fame and used to have a slogan, the 24-hour, eight-day-a-week beer. Which, on the scale of hilarious beer jingles you can never get away with now, is second only to the granddaddy of them all, Schaefer. The one beer to have when you're having more than one. We created a special recipe for the commemorative edition, Woofington said. Woofington said. It is going to be a one-time run, and it's going to be light, easy drinking ale. It's likely, of course, that nobody will drink a drop of the precious grog until and unless the Bengals go through another extended drought. Bengals fans will make do with their usual flavors Sunday, but Hooday will surely be on their lips, even if it isn't in their throats. I just love that. And there's a great inset photo of a man with uh, a six-pack of the classic 88 beer uh, woven into his beard. He has the dope tiger stripes over his head. He's looking like he's having a great time with the game. Um... And I just thought this was kind of funny because it's so (laughs) – this is very much a sports fan kind of thing. Um, The big game, Rams v. Bengals, which we cannot say the name of. Um, (laughs) Here's a little bit of commentary. Chris Collinsworth played in the first two Bengals Super Bowls and now in their third. And he'll be in the booth next to Al Michaels on NBC broadcast Sunday. I'm kind of filling out the trifecta here for them, Collinsworth said during a phone interview. Collinsworth, 63, still lives half the year in Cincinnati, so he probably wants to avoid what happened in his last Super Bowl when the city of Philadelphia was so displeased as he analyzed the Eagles' upset of the Patriots that a petition was started. You know, even when I do a regular season Bengals game, the question always comes back. Why do you hate the Bengals, Collinsworth said. <laughs> Collinsworth added he also will hear that the favored, uh, will hear that he favored the Bengals, so he can't really win. The funny part about all of this matchup is, even though Collinsworth lives in Cincinnati, he knows the Rams better. The Bengals were not on the NBC Sunday Night Football this year. They haven't been since October 21st, 2018, when the Bengals played the Chiefs. That's not even going to help Collinsworth as Andy Dalton, was the Bengals, quarters, the Bengals quarterback, and Marvin Lewis was the coach back then. I probably have one more, excuse me, I probably have more relationships on the Rams than I do on the Bengals, Collinsworth said. We haven't done a Bengals game in forever. 
Quote, I've only met Bengals coach Zach Taylor a couple times, and I went out to practice the other day and met the other two coordinators for the first time. I mean, that almost never happens on Sunday night football, that you go through the entire year of Sunday night football and you haven't done the teams, both teams, in the Super Bowl. For Collinsworth, it is expected to be his final game with Michaels as his partner. Michaels is being quartered to be Amazon's lead player, uh, excuse me, lead play-by-player on this exclusive Thursday night package beginning in the fall. ESPN and Monday Night Football are also likely to make a run at Michaels, according to sources. If Michaels ends up at Amazon, he will still do some select NBC games. Collinsworth considers Michaels one of his best friends, but Collinsworth is not going with him to Amazon. He called two games a week before there and did not like it. I thought it was impossible to do the game I wanted to do it. Do the research, to do the homework, to do the, stu- the, the studying, Collinsworth said. For me, personally, I did not like it at all. I really didn't. You know, we do it every once in a while, but I love the deep dive part of the job. I love all the film study and getting to know every player and coach and really studying details. It was not for me. I wouldn't do it again. In December, the Post reported that Collinsworth had closed on a new deal to remain as NBC's Sunday night game analyst when Mike Tirico is is expected to take over. I congratulated Collinsworth on the new deal during the phone conversation, and he said thanks, so consider that a confirmation of a done deal. As for the Super Bowl, the last time around, his fifth as a game analyst, Eagles fans were so upset with a couple of Collinsworth opinions on officiating calls, they made a change.org petition to have him only call New England games and described him as, quote, the most biased and horrible commentator ever. With 100 million people or so watching, there's a lot of pressure. But especially when it's in your hometown and involves your former team, you don't want any petitions in your backyard. Quote, I think I'm going <laughs> to... Quote, I think I'm going to be able to do this the right way, but you never know until you get there, Collinsworth said. And there's a side note, NBC going for all the angles. Producer Fred Guadelli and director Drew Eskoff will do their seventh Super Bowl together. Five have been with NBC. NBC will have 40 cameras for the game. The networks will have a brand new graphics look, a new score bug, and will implement virtual and augmented reality into the telecast. All right. And that's it for a little sports news. I don't think there's anything else I really found in here that was particularly um, let's see. Oh, how about this? 400 well, I don't want to spoil it. <laughs> it's easy to spoil with the headlines on these. Uh, This is in the post, too, just a couple pages back. A Home Depot employee used fake bills to steal about $400,000 from a Phoenix-area store over the past four years, according to a Secret Service investigation. The audacious scheme was discovered in December when the retailer contacted the agency to investigate hundreds of thousands of dollars that had gone missing. It turns out the real money had been replaced by funny money purchased on Amazon. The employee, Adrian uh, Adrian Jean Pineda, was responsible for counting the cash in the Tempe, Arizona stores, registers, then putting the money in a bag that went to Wells Fargo. He's attempted to have taken the real money and replaced it with bills sold on Amazon as, quote, prop money $100 bills, realistic double-sided printing, fake money that looks real for party decorations and videos. That was the item number. That was the item name. One more. Prop money, $100 bills, realistic double-sided printing fake money that looks like real for party decorations and videos. And that was written by Elisa Fickinger. 
Stryptocurrency site. You can tell this is one from the post. OnlyFans Gal's new platform takes digital coins by Ariel Zilber. A former nurse who made more than $1 million last year after she left her job to pursue a career as a virtual sex worker on OnlyFans says she's creating her own platform for erotic performers who will be uh, accepting payments in cryptocurrency. Allie Ray, 37, quit her $84,000 a year job as a nurse in Boston Intensive Care Unit after her co-workers and bosses discovered that she had an account on OnlyFans. When given an ultimatum to delete the account or get fired, she chose to leave her job and focus solely on OnlyFans, where she said that she earned almost $369,000 for each month she was on the site last year. But after OnlyFans announced last year that it would stop allowing pornographic material on its platform, which it has reversed since, Ray was left spooked that her source of income would dry up at even a moment's notice, even after the site reversed its decision. Quote, to be making that kind of money and then to be suddenly told I was shut off in 30 days was scary, she told the Post. OnlyFans, which said it was pressured to ban porn by large payment processors, concerned about facilitating sex trafficking, reversed its decision amid intense backlash. Nonetheless, Ray was taking not taking any chances. Next month, she said she plans to officially launch Wetspace, an OnlyFans-esque adult entertainment site that will process payments in cryptocurrency, meaning the identities of performers and customers will be more easily shielded. Which, actually, if you know anything about the blockchain, it means it's actually a very public and visible ledger. And I wonder who the first celebrity to get caught will be. Consumers of erotic content will make purchases, especially now that every... Uh, now that like basically every celeb now has like a public NFT wallet to like show off their apes or whatever, you know, you can just go look and see like what they're up to. Consumers of erotic content can make purchases from their favorite online performers using digital stable coins, including Binance USD, Ethereum Tether, DAI, BNB, and AVAX. My inspiration for creating Wetspace truly came from me being a content creator myself, she told The Post. I wanted to create a platform where sex workers can grow their business long term without fear of having to worry about big payment processors. Yeah, there you go. I mean, <laughs> that's just going to happen. Can't just be one. Can't just be a Spotify, you know? Got to change over time. see no I'm gonna skip that here's a good one <laughs> he's not a lone ranger Russia isn't the only thing that Sarah Palin can see from her house page six is told she gets a pretty good view of former ranger star Ron Dugway excuse me former ranger star Ron Dugway from right there on her sofa we reported last month that the fair had been quietly dating since late last year, but the former VP candidate, 57, has been playing coy, and Ali continues to claim that she's just friends with Duguay, 64. He's my buddy. We have hockey in common, she told a Post photographer when asked about our story last week. But insiders told us that not only are they dating, but the stick star spent about a month staying with Palin at her home in Wasilla, Alaska, around New Year's. Curiouser still, Duguay gave the game away by doing media appearances from her living room which news junkies quickly recognized as the former governor's when degue did a live zoom call with the sunday sauce podcast 
hosted by Mike Ragu. I do not make that up. The Sunday Sauce with Mike Ragu. One Eagle Eye fan commented, What a great podcast done from Sarah Palin's house. Good for her. Getting it done. All right. How about this one? I kind of wanted to read about this one in the Times, but it's funnier to read about this one in the Post. Something's fishy. Adams admits, I'm not a real vegan. Halibut. Wait. Mayor Adams cooks vegan food for the media Monday, but later owned up to actually being pescatarian. By Emily Crane. Mayor Adams, who has previously claimed to be vegan, bizarrely refused to say on Monday if he ever eats fish, only to admit hours later to being a pescatarian. Um... <laughs> uh... In the interest of uh, ethics, I will say that I was uh, a strict no animal products vegan for about three, four years. His honor brought up to his own, uh, his honor, I have to keep getting used to that uh, wonderful nickname. His honor brought up his own eating habits at a press conference in Brooklyn following multiple reports that he's been spotted out eating fish at various restaurants and said no one would worry about what's on Mayor Adams' plate. But shortly before dinner time, City Hall issued a statement in which Adams confessed to falsely fostering the no-fish tale. I'm proud of myself. Let me be clear. Changing to a plant-based diet saved my, my life. And I aspire... Dude. All right. And I aspire to be plant-based and 100%... Uh, okay. I, I, let me be clear. Changing to a plant-based diet saved my life, and I aspire to be plant-based 100% of the time. Adam said, Hmm. I want to be a role model for people who are following to aspire to follow a plant-based diet, but as I said, I am perfectly imperfect and have occasionally eaten fish. One more time. Let me be clear. Changing to a plant-based diet saved my life, and I aspire to be a plant-based 100% of the time, Adam said. I want to be a role model for people who are following to aspire to follow a plant-based diet, but as I said, I am perfectly imperfect, and I have occasionally eaten fish. Earlier, Adams repeatedly deferred to himself into the third person and discussed his food intake. Does Eric eat fish? Does he eat a hamburger? Does he do this? Does he do that? You know, I mean, it's just, listen, here's my message. The more plant-based meals you have and the healthier you're going to be, Adams said unprompted. Ignore the noise. Don't worry about what's on Adams, uh, Mayor Adams' plate. Put the Adams on your plate because I'm living healthier lifestyle. He added. Holy shit. I honestly thought someone else, I thought like his assistant was saying that. His insistence that he follows a plant-based centered life. <laughs> Motherfucker, I live a plant-based centered life. <laughs> if that's what you want to say. Game after Politico reported Saturday that the mayor had ordered fish when he dined at Osteria La Baia, a midtown Italian restaurant with former Mayor Bill de Blasio last week. That man knew how to eat food. A restaurant employee told the outlet Adams rarely ordered fish and salad when he dines at the 52nd Street restaurant, whose specialty is skate, adding, he's not a vegan, he's a pescatarian. Adams City Hall Communications Director Maxwell Young insisted the mayor does not eat fish, despite Adams' later confession. <laughs> Holy shit. Why? Adams City Hall Communications Director Maxwell Young insisted the mayor does not eat fish, despite Adams' later confession to the contrary. Adams went plant-based in 2016, claiming it helped reverse his diabetes. 
Well, I claim that weed helped me lose 100 pounds and regain my sanity and stop drinking and smoking and whatever, but I don't know if that's true either. Hold the Guac, Avocados Soar by Thomas Barabi. Super Bowl party hosts may want to skip the guacamole this year. That's because uh, (laughs) avocados. That's because avocados have hit their highest prices on record ahead of this year's game, according to one price measure. While prices traditionally rise ahead of the Super Bowl due to the surge in demand for avocados and guacamole, the supply chain disruptions have made this year's spike even more pronounced than usual. The price of a 20-pound box of avocados from the state of Mijocan in Mexico, the country's largest exporter of the fruit, was 26.23 as of February 3rd. That's about $6.29 more expensive than it was at this time last year. Avocado prices have reached their highest level on record, dating back at least 20 years, Bloomberg News reported, citing from the U.S. Department of Agriculture that Mexico's Agricultural Bureau... Avocados are just one of the many popular foods that have increased in cost as the U.S. and other countries grapple with surging inflation. Suppliers and businesses have struggled to keep up with consumer demand while dealing with worker shortages, shipping delays, and higher transportation costs, among other economic challenges. From December 2020 to December 2021, the price of all fruits and vegetables increased by 5%, according to the Bureau of Labor Statistics Consumer Price Index. I wonder if that's adjusted for inflation or not, because inflation actually went up more than that in that time span. Last month, Wells Fargo economists calculated the average Super Bowl party spread could cost up to 14% more this year than it did one year earlier. Well, there you go. Meat products are the biggest culprit for the higher cost. Prepared boneless chicken wings are 26% more expensive year over year. Ground hamburger meat was up 17% YOY. While avocados and other fruits and vegetables are more expensive, they still represent... And a relative bargain compared to proteins, according to Wells Fargo, potato chips are another comparatively cheap option for Super Bowl party hosts. That's it for the uh, for the post. I think we got I think we got what we need from that. And the uh, the peep smag there. All right. Here's some uh, some good quick shots from the New York Times. Chinese firms added to Biden's red flag list. All right. The Biden administration is raising red flags about 33 Chinese companies whose legitimacy it cannot verify, imposing new restrictions on their ability to receive shipments from U.S. exporters and requiring extra diligence from American companies that want to do business with them, the Commerce Department said on Monday. That was adding to companies that was already on the what was known as the unverified list. China has repeatedly said Washington has made groundless attacks and malicious smears. And that's the concise little capsule of of out-of-context information you will get from the cover of the Money and Life section in the USA Today. Taiwanese supplier to chip producers to expand. Global Wafers Co., which supplies silicon wafers to semiconductor manufacturers, said it will invest $3.6 billion in facilities in Asia, the United States, and Europe. The Taiwanese company said the $100 billion new Taiwan dollars, $3.6 billion, earmarked for the purchase, will go into expanding its production capacity. The company, headquartered in Shinchu, Taiwan, said the production should increase in the second half of 2023, but gave no details of possible locations. And here's a really fun one that I enjoy. Report. North Korea steals millions for missiles. 
North Korea is stealing hundreds of millions of dollars from financial institutions and cryptocurrency firms and exchanges. Illicit money that is important an important source for funding its nuclear and missile programs, UN experts said in a report, quoting cyber specialists. The experts said in the report section of Cyber Activities that an unidentified cyber security form an unidentified cybersecurity firm reported in 2021 that the North's cyber actors stole a total of $400 million worth of cryptocurrency through seven intrusions into cryptocurrency exchange, exchanges and investment firms. Also, since uh, the USA Today loves reporting about... Um, Nintendo profiles. Reggie fils then president of CEO of Nintendo America, shows off the Nintendo 3DS. It's a lovely little picture of uh, Reggie holding up a 3DS. Let me continue. Just a little bit. By Mike Snyder in the USA Today Todays. Even before he leveled up Nintendo... Uh, leveled up to Nintendo's top US job, Reggie fils knew how to make strategic moves. While interviewing in 2003 to join Nintendo and head its U.S. sales and marketing efforts, Fiza May asked to meet with Satoru Iwata, who had recently been made Nintendo president. Fiza May got the meeting and the job, but years later learned it was a massive breach of protocol. The request almost precluded me from even getting the job offer, Fiza May told USA Today. But I knew enough about the company for me to be successful. I needed to have a strong relationship with Mr. Iwata. It was crucial that he, Andy Wada, who died in 2015, connect. And when we did, this conversation that they had was supposed to be about 30 minutes and ended up being much longer than that. And as they say, the rest is history. As a chopped up quote, so it's a little confusing, I'm sorry. Three years later, Fiza May began, uh, became Nintendo of America's president and chief operating officer becoming the company's face in the U.S. during its launches of the Nintendo Wii, the handheld Nintendo 3DS, and other systems and games. He departed Nintendo in April 2019 after 15 years with the company. Details about the meeting and other leadership advice appear in his upcoming book, Disappearing, or, <laughs> yeah, Disappearing the Game. That's what's happening right now. Disrupting the Game, From the Bronx to the Top of Nintendo, due out May 3rd. I will definitely read that. I highlight the book I did. Mm -hmm. It does say that. I highlight in the book I did do a lot of unconventional things and it really helped rejuvenate Nintendo and its fortunes moving forward. These quotes are really strange. Sounds like they're talking to someone instead of just lifting them directly from his voice. When Fiza May, who is 60 now, joined Nintendo, the company in the U.S. had fallen behind Sony and Microsoft, which had entered the video game marketplace with the PlayStation and Xbox in 1995. Um... <laughs> when Fiza May made his first major appearance for Nintendo at the Electronic Entertainment Expo in Los Angeles in 2004, it was tantamount to a mic drop. My name is Reggie, he said in the presentation, which you can watch on YouTube. I'm about kicking ass, I'm about taking names, and we're about making games. That game plan worked. Reggie sold people on Nintendo all over again. Declared Nintendo life in a profile upon his retirement announcement. This is precisely what Reggie did for Nintendo for 15 years, translating Nintendo's actions, then selling them. And in doing so, he helped not just sell the products, but make Nintendo a brand again. And I would agree. 
NOA leadership is exactly what made Nintendo what it is today. And the Nintendo Japan leadership is what made the software what it is today, for better and for worse. Before Nintendo, Pete's and MTV. His pre-Nintendo career will likely be inspiring and enlightening for readers. His parents migrated to the U.S. in the 1950s from Haiti, married and lived in New York City where Fiz Ame was born. There's a story there around just my heritage, my personal background, as I grew up in the Bronx and as I proceeded to bootstrap myself to Cornell University and on a series of different leadership roles across a variety of different industries, he said. Fiz Ame's earlier career included jobs at Procter & Gamble, Pizza Hut, Guinness, and Viacom, Whereas senior vice president for marketing for MTV and VH1, he created marketing plans for the concert for New York City, held to raise funds after the September 11th, 2001 terror attacks. Those already in the workplace and students unsure of their career path would benefit from his upcoming book, too, he said. Throughout the book, I share leadership stories in terms of real lessons learned from situations that could be applied to today's business environment. Fizame said, so this is about, you know, managing through a downturn in a business. It's how you do with a difficult boss. It's real tangible advice to the reader for navigating their own career, whether it is that, whatever it is that they're doing. In his upcoming book, Fiza may also address some issues that would be timely for and beyond Black History Month. I touch a lot about the power of diversity and inclusion, about having a diverse leadership team can really help organizations achieve superior results, Fiza may said. So that's a certain element of my story. I wouldn't say that mine is purely, you know, an African-American story. It's a story of an African-American who did some pretty interesting and phenomenal things, including heading up the largest part of a Japanese company. Since leaving Nintendo, Fizume returned to Cornell as a lecturer and remains a university advisor. He's kept his hand in the video game industry, serving on the advisory board for independent publisher Rogue Games and also a mentor on the New York... Excuse me. And is also a mentor on the New York Video Game Critics Circle, assisting students in seeking to enter the video games industry and journalism. He is also chairman of UTA Acquisition Corp., a special purpose acquisition company, or SPAC, which includes, which includes Reddit founder Alexis Ohanian on its board and focuses on the digital entertainment space. Recent weeks have seen a surge in deals in the video game industry, including Sony's deal to acquire Halo and Destiny developer Bungie, Microsoft's acquisition of Activision Blizzard, both these things we've covered on the podcast, Call of Duty, and Take-Two's Interac Take Interactive's purchase of Zynga. In addition to consolidation, Fiza May sees opportunity for smaller companies to stay independent and chart a path of their own versus being a part of a big monolith. That's why I'm part of the SPAC. Definitely not part of the SPAC to benefit from what a SPAC's all about. Fiza May also addresses corporate culture building, a topic that is also on top of mind with Microsoft Activision Blizzard deal. It's funny to think that that's actually what the deal is in reality. Because of the state of California, has filed a lawsuit against the Call of Duty publisher claiming it had fostered a sexist culture and paid women less than men despite doing more work. As a leader, the way you behave is observed throughout the entire company. As you set the tone for good or for bad, Fiza May said. And so, whenever a company has this, these types of issues that we've seen, and unfortunately we've seen it quite a bit throughout many companies within the gaming industry, I believe it is really a culture situation set by uppermost leadership. Yes, that, that would extend to everything. I really look forward to reading his book, Disrupting the Game, from the Bronx to the top of Nintendo. Great to Fils May. Uh, I'd love to read your G GD book. That you'll ever hear this, but the book sounds great.
All right. Up next, I'm going to drink this soda. Pretend that was a, a message for you. Thiel set to leave board of Facebook parent. Peter Thiel, one of Facebook's earliest investors and its longest-serving outside board member, plans to step down from his position at the social media parent company, uh, the social media company, parent company. <laughs> literally, oh, let's read it again. Peter, Th this is by Salvador Rodriguez. Peter Thiel, one of Facebook's earliest investors and its longest-serving outside board member, plans to step down from his position at the social media company, parent company, Meta Platforms, Inc., said Monday. Mr. Thiel intends to focus on helping Republican candidates supporting their agenda of former President Donald Trump in the 2022 midterm elections, according to a person familiar with the matter. Mr. Thiel, uh, who I just noticed at the very top, who owns Palantir, who is running a giant full banner ad on the top of this paper. Our software helps get vaccines to millions. It will power breakthroughs in your enterprise. Foundational software of tomorrow delivered today. Mr. Thiel, who has made his fortune as one of Silicon Valley's top venture capital investors, has served in the tech company's board since 2005. He became Facebook's first outside investor in August 2004 by acquiring a stake in the company for $500,000 that earned him hundreds of millions of dollars in profits. Mr. Thiel decided now was the right time to leave Facebook's board rather than be a distraction to the company ahead of the coming elections, the person said. Meta Chairman and Chief Executive Officer Mark Zuckerberg said, Peter has been a valuable member of our board and I am deeply grateful for everything he has done for our company from believing in us. When few others would, to teaching me so many lessons about business, economics, and the world. Mr. Thiel is expected to step down after the company's annual shareholder meeting, which is typically in May. It has been a privilege to work with one of the great entrepreneurs of our time, Mr. Thiel said. His talents will serve Meta as well as he leads... His talents will serve Meta well as he leads the company into a new era. Mr. Thiel's departure coincides with the intensifying pressures confronting Facebook on several fronts. Meta's stock price last week fell by... 26%, shaving $323 billion from its market valuation after the company said it expected revenue growth to slow. It also cited inflation as a weight on advertiser spending and estimated that ad tracking changes imposed by Apple Inc. would cost the social media company $10 billion this year. Considered the tech industry's most prominent conservative, Mr. Thiel has long been considered one of the strongest voices on the board. He has repeatedly advised Mr. Zuckerberg not to bow to public pressure and particularly regarding the social media network's effects on politics. The tycoon began The tycoon became Mr. Trump's most notable ally in Silicon Valley during the 2016 election. He contributed to the Republicans' 2016 campaign and served as advisor to Mr. Trump throughout his presidency. For the coming midterm elections, Mr. Thiel will be supporting JD Vance. And Blake, of course he will. And Blake Masters, her running for U.S. Senate seats representing Ohio and Arizona, respectively, the person said. Mr. Masters, a Republican challenging Democratic Senator Mark Kelly in Arizona, has served as chief operating officer of Thiel Capital and is president of the Thiel Foundation. Mr. Vance is a partner at Naria. 
an early-stage venture capital fund that has invested alongside Mr. Thiel. Mr. Thiel had discussed with people close to him that the possibility of resigning from Facebook's board as far back as 2018 after his relationship with the company came under a strain following a dispute with a fellow director over Mr. Thiel's support for Mr. Trump's campaign. We're talking about the main character of Hillbilly Elegy becoming an ally of Peter Thiel. But I'll continue. Mr. Thiel's politics have made him a lightning rod at Facebook with some liberal critics citing him as negative influence on Mr. Zuckerberg. While many conservatives, I don't think anyone's influencing Zuck. I think he's just doing his own fucking thing. While many conservatives see him as an essential ally in an industry that they say has long leaned to the left. Once Mr. Thiel steps down, venture capitalist Mark Anderson will be the longest serving member of the board, which has been criticized at times as lacking independence from Mr. Zuckerberg. As chairman and CEO, Mr. Zuckerberg controls most of the company's voting stock, through supervoting shares. The majority of Meta's outside shareholders in recent years have voted to separate those roles which the company has rejected. Last month, the company appointed DoorDash Inc. CEO Tony Zhu to his board, adding outside executive experience to the group. Mr. Thiel rose to prominence in the early 2000s as one of the original founders of PayPal Holdings, which led CEO, which led it, he led as CEO until eBay acquired it in October 2002 for $1.5 billion. From his time at the electronic payments platform, Mr. Thiel became one of the most visible members of the PayPal Mafia, a group of early employees that included Tesla CEO Elon Musk, who have since gone on to found and invest in other notable tech companies. And the cycle continues. Time is a flat circle. Mr. Thiel also serves as the chairman of Palantir Technologies, Inc., I have just noted for you, a Denver-based company that specializes in building software helping military and intelligence agencies mine and analyze data at large scales. Hello to you, Mr. Software. Palantir went public in 2020 and has market capitalization on more than $25 billion. If I had a public company capable of military intelligence contracts and I had a public worth of $25 billion, I would say that you know, hmm, yeah, I'd probably download all public podcasts and transcribe them for, you know, later purposes. Why not? More recently, Mr. Thiel invested in the video platform Rumble, which is positioning itself as a right-leaning alternative between the social media ecosystem. Mr. Vance also invested in Rumble. So there's an ad above that about Palantir in an article above an article about Palantir, and now... Joe Rogan gets offer from Rumble right next to it by Ann Steele. Rumble Inc. offered Joe Rogan $100 million to take his podcast exclusively to its social video website after weeks of controversy at Spotify Technology SA. The offer made public in a letter from Rumble chief executive Chris Pavlovsky posted to Twitter follows Spotify CEO Daniel Elk's letter to employees apologizing for Mr. Rogan's use of a racial slur in previous podcast episodes but saying he doesn't believe in silencing him. Spotify has said Mr. Rogan has signed a multi-year deal with the company in September 2020. It is unclear whether Mr. Rogan would be able to switch platforms anytime soon. The influence of Mr. Rogan's show has and the influence Mr. Rogan's show has and how much responsibility Spotify has for its content has generated significant attention in recent days. I'd say it's the number one story that people are talking about regardless of anything else that's happening. <laughs> Even though the Olympics and a global conflict are on the horizon. 
several artists, including Neil Young, Joni Mitchell, and Graham Nash, said that they wanted to remove their content from Spotify, uh, which at least Neil Young already did, for what they deem is misinformation spread by Mr. Rogan about the COVID-19 pandemic and vaccines. Singer-songwriter India Airy said she pulled her music from the platform because she opposed the language of Mr. Rogan used around race and the amount of money he earns from Spotify. She shared the compilation video that where Mr. Rogan used a racial slur in his show numerous times. They were responding to him using the N-word directly over a dozen times, and that's just in the clips um, of the show that are online that people have like clipped together. But honestly, Spotify has removed over 131 episodes of his show from their listings. So clearly there's a lot that they're not going to stand by. Spotify declined to comment. Mr. Rogan didn't respond to request for comment. Mr. Elk said in his letter that Mr. Rogan chose to remove some episodes from Spotify after discussions with the company. And Mr. Rogan's own reflections. Tracking site JRE Missing says 113 of Mr. Rogan's episodes have been taken off Spotify since Friday. That's changed. It's already more than 130. In 2020, Spotify paid $100 million, according to people familiar with the deal, to host the Joe Rogan experience exclusively for its platform. Anyway, they're never going to go with Rumble, but they already made their deal. They're locked into a contract. So... But, you know, maybe he'll end up there after the contract's over. And hey, here's a little bit of movie news. Fight Club ends with a bang again. China's Tencent streaming platform quietly restores 1999 cult film's conclusion by Wenjin Fong. Cult film, pardon me, cult film Fight Club once again uh, concludes with a bang for Chinese viewers after a streaming video platform quietly took down a version that ended in a jarringly pro-government note. Users of Tencent Holdings Limited video streaming service who watched the 1999 David Fincher movie can now see Edward Norton holding Helena Bonham Carter's hand as buildings crumble in a symphony of explosions. Gone is a note at the end that said that the police prevented the explosions and sent Mr. Norton's character to an asylum. The change, which users first noted late last week, comes after Tencent sparked a global ridicule by uploading the censored version of Fight Club to its streaming platform in January. Tencent didn't explain the new ending at the time, nor has it said why it restored the, the original one. The company declined to comment. It probably has to do with the fact that the author of the book came out and said that it was a more accurate ending. I, I honestly believe that. Censorship has, grown, <laughs> censorship has grown stricter but more opaque and less predictable under Chinese leader Xi Jinping. For many among the country's cinephiles, Tencent's response to the furor over Fight Club only muddles the waters more. Quote, you never know where the red line lies, wrote one user of the popular Twitter-like Weibo platform after the film's original ending was restored. For decades, Chinese censors demanded that scenes deemed sensitive or vulgar be cut from officially imported foreign films and TV shows. In one famous example, 2007's Pirates of the Caribbean at World's End appeared in mainland theaters, missing roughly half of the scenes involving a villain played by Hong Kong actor Chow Yun-Fat after censors decided that he made Chinese people look bad. Chinese authorities have, on rare occasions, required elements to be added to films as a means of censorship. Such was the case of the 2018 romantic fantasy, The Shape of Water, in which dark, a dark swimsuit was added to cover the naked body of the protagonist in a shower scene with her amphibian lover. But it is unusual for films to be augmented in a way that completely alters their endings. I would also add that I believe that skeletons are um, usually censored from um, 
certain regions. I, I don't know where exactly, but I know that skeletons are a, like, basically like seeing a, a you know, I don't know, genitals. It's that level of know, profane in some regions. Um, but it is unusual for films to be augmented in a way that completely alters their endings. And in the case of Fight Club, a movie considered part of the anti-establishment canon that has long been widely available to Chinese viewers through black market DVDs, uh, the inserting of a pro-establishment conclusion sparked mockery in and out of the country. On Jiju, a Korra-like site where users responded by suggesting mock endings for other films. One user imagined the new ending for Shawshank Redemption, in which Andy Dufresne, the wrongfully convicted main character, is rearrested by police and sentenced to additional prison time because the right thing cannot be done in the wrong way. In a recent episode, CBS's The Late Show with Stephen Colbert responded to the Fight Club alteration with its own set of new endings, including a version of 1977's original Star Wars film in which the evil empire rebuilds the Death Star and imprisons the rebels. Chinese regulations on censorship require that films avoid confusing justice with injustice and ban plots that tout arrogance for criminals. To ensure, those were quotes, to ensure access to mainland China's lucrative market, filmmakers in Hong Kong have long been known to make two versions of crime movies, one for mainland audiences that ends in victory for the police and another with the opposite result for the rest of the world. China's regulators in charge of film and the internet didn't respond to requests for comment. It couldn't be determined who was responsible for the altered Fight Club ending. Chuck Palnuck, the writer whose novel inspired the Fight Club film, Fight Club film responded to news of the altered ending with a post on Twitter late last month. This is super wonderful. Everyone gets a happy ending in China. Of course, he later followed it up by saying that it was a more accurate ending because in the book, that's actually kind of what happens. Um, let's see. Oh, there's a little sidebar. Foreign movies run into barriers. Other foreign films with similar themes have encountered barriers in China. V for Vendetta, the 2005 dystopian action film that helped popularize the Guy Fox mask in an anti-establishment as an anti-establishment emblem, was erased from China's most popular movie database, <laughs> database in 2020, despite already well uh, being well known to local audiences. Joker, the 2019 thriller starring Joaquin Phoenix, never showed in Chinese theaters, despite being one of that year's highest-grossing films. A snub that many expectant Chinese moviegoers speculated may have been related to its anarchic theme. <laughs> well, apparently they thought the same thing here. Last year, the Tencent platform uploaded a new version of 2005's Lord of War, in which the main character, a criminal arms dealer played by Nicolas Cage, confesses and is sentenced to life in prison rather than being set free with help from the U.S. government, as it happens in the original. The Lord of War alternate ending, also described in a written note, remains on Tencent's platform. <laughs> which is great, because uh, I believe Nick, uh, the Lord of War was actually based on a real character, like a, an assimilation of real characters. The current version of Fight Club, despite having its ending restored, is still missing several scenes involving nudity. So there you go. Uh, nudity and uh, skeletons. Let's see, are you bored yet? I hope not. Let's see working up on two hours you know we can call it there but i think maybe there's one more yeah here's a let's want to take a look here not even a global pandemic could stop the jackass guys from the box office this is in uh february 7th post jackass forever the fourth movie in the anarch 
The Anarchic series earned $23.5 million in its first weekend in theaters, according to Studio Estimates Sunday. It is easily... It easily bested its main competitors, the big-budget sci-fi spectacle Moonfall, which came in second, $10 million, and Spider-Man No Way Home at third, after spending six of its eight weeks in theaters at number one. Spider-Man took in an additional $9.6 million in North American theaters, bringing its domestic total to $748.9 million. All right. Um... I'll let you go, but I'm going to be back tomorrow. How about that? Because I have more stories here, and uh, it's been a few days, and I want to get rid of this big old sack of papers on my desk. So we're going to do that. And to play you out, I'm going to go with uh, a little bit of this, because this is how everyone should live their life. Just, um, just listen to David Byrne here.
You get an extra song.